All right, once you've met someone, but only when you've met someone, you can take a seat. Um, everyone, just want to say welcome. I am so glad you guys are here. My name is Josiah. If this is your first time, just want to say welcome. I would love to meet you after and just say hi. Um, hopefully you can stick around and hang out today. Uh, let's do this. Let's get started. We're in Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But Nehemiah chapter 10. So Nehemiah 10. If you're getting a Bible, just right before Psalms, kind of look in that area, you'll find it. Um, let me give you guys a little update on what's going on. All right. So here's what's happening. I might have mentioned this last week about the plan for where we're going to be next. Um, as you guys know, Hammock Point Elementary has kind of been our summer home. Uh, Quiet Waters Elementary, the church we've been at the last year and a half, was being remodeled, like the AC and the roof. So we had to come here for the last like 11 weeks. And so um, it's been a great space. We're so thankful for this place. Quiet Waters, here's the update, is not done being remodeled. So we will be here next week. We'll be at Hammock Point, this school right here next week, August 11th. And uh, we should be back August 18th. That is the hope. We'll be back at Quiet Waters August 18th. So August 11th, where are we? Here, we're here. Um, and also, just so you know, kind of like update, we're going to have a back-to-school bash. So after service, we're going to have some food, some games. Uh, we're going to have some just family time. So here's kind of also what's happening. This is our last, um, we're, we've been able to like leave everything here. That's been such a, a blessing for us, like leave all of our church stuff here. We're actually packing that up this week because the teachers are coming back this week. We're going to, you know, drive everything back in next week. And so here's what that means. Because of some teachers stuff and they're coming back, we are actually only going to have kids ministry for five and under. So we're going to have six and up in here. So we're going to kind of make it like a back to school family service. Um, next week, specifically in Nehemiah, it works out so good. God is good this way. Uh, they're celebrating. Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, the chapters we'll look at. They're celebrating. So we're going to look at their celebration. We're going to celebrate with them, and uh, we're going to have a family service, back-to-school bash, and a little early, have some games and fun, and do that next week. Cool? Sound like a plan? But we are here where next week? I just said here. I messed up. <laughs> but we're here next week. So anyways, Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, let me just catch you up to speed with where we're at. So Nehemiah built the wall. The whole reason why he came to Jerusalem was to rebuild the walls, to bring stability, to move the people back in, to rebuild the economy, to let Jerusalem prosper again. That's happened. But that's not over. I, I feel like with Nehemiah, sometimes we look at it as like, Nehemiah had this vision to rebuild the city. Yes, and, and so much more. It wasn't just to rebuild a city, but it was to rebuild a people, a people centered around God, around his word. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, after the people are gathered, the walls rebuilt, if you remember in Nehemiah 8, there was like this rediscovery of the word of God. The people said, bring out the book. Bring out the book. We want God's word. They bring out the book, and there's this great revival happening. They start repenting and, and crying and just confessing their sin, and the priests say, it's not time to repent. It's time to celebrate. We have the word of God. Let's do it. And they, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Last week in Nehemiah 9, now it's time to repent. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, it's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. It's the longest prayer in the Bible. And they're retelling the story of Israel. They're saying, God, you've been so faithful and we've been so faithless. God, you, you pursue us. You love us. We sin and sin again, and you still love us and pursue us. And we just talked about the idea of retelling this gospel story, that despite our sin and our lack of faith, God is so much more faithful. Uh, God is faithful even when we are faithless. He cannot deny himself. Amen? That's what the Bible says. God is just faithful time and time again. And so they're confessing their sins. Now, here's where we're at in chapter 10. They're basically saying things are going to change. 
Yes, our fathers, our forefathers, we, we've rebelled, we've turned against you time and time again, but things are going to change. And so we looked at how really Nehemiah is honestly a, a great story of ultimately revival within a people. I mean, it was a dead nation in a sense. And now it's come back to life. It literally is revival in many ways. And so here's kind of like the, the progress, as I just mentioned. Nehemiah 8 is the rediscovery of the word. Nehemiah 9, this is the confession of sins. You'll see it up here. And we'll also in Nehemiah 10, it's the covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. It's almost as if in chapter 10, they're renewing their wedding vows. They're saying everything you told us, because remember, they've just been studying the word for six hours a day. Six hours a day, they're reading the Bible, talking about the Bible, discussing it in small groups. They're like living out the word, and here's where we see covenant renewal happening. See, what's the point if the city's rebuilt and everything, the economy is strong, but inside the city itself, the people's hearts are rotten? Like, what's the point if everything outwardly looks great, but people's hearts are still far from God? It's so much more than just economically prospering. It's how do we have people's hearts still centered towards God and desiring God? How do we have it be more than just about the prosperity of the people, but where their hearts crave and have deep longing and intimacy with their creator? So this is Nehemiah's heart, and this is the people's heart. And we're going to see, like, they're going to fight for their culture here in chapter 10. The idea for us today is we need to guard the culture. We need to guard the things that we stand for, that the Bible stands for. We want to fight for it. Uh, Maybe you've heard this saying, like, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Nehemiah had great strategy, but culture matters. What is the culture of the people? How do we keep it to be a healthy, God-centered culture? And so they're actually, in a sense, in a sense, it's almost like they're renewing their wedding vows. They're saying, God, here's what we vow to you. Here's the covenant that you've made with us long ago, and we're just repeating it today. And it's almost as if they've identified a few areas where they realize this is where we've kind of gone astray. And this is where we need to renew the covenant specifically. So here's where we're at in Nehemiah chapter 10, all right? Let's just kind of look back really quick at verse 38, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. Here's how it ends. It ends and says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. All right, so that's how nine, we we talked about this last week, that's how it ends. Here in chapter 10 now is the covenant. Here's what they're standing for. Here's what they're writing out. Here's the areas they've identified and said, we need to relook at how we do life in this way. So the title today is simply, What Makes Us Unique. What makes us unique? As followers of God, as followers of Jesus, what makes us unique? What makes us look differently than the world? The whole idea of the Jewish nation was to be called out to be a people following God and say, they look different than everyone else, and they're prospering when they follow God's law, when they follow this book. And there's literally identifying markers in their life. And so we want to talk about that, what makes us unique. So Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to look at that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to skip uh, verse 1 through 27. If you would like to read these names, please feel free. You can mess up as much as I did. Uh, But we're going to start in verse 28. So in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 1, it it does talk about how they place their seal on the document. And here's the names, right? Just look at that one, verse 1 through 27. You see all the names? Okay, let's go to verse 28. All right, verse 28. Here's what it says. Here's the covenant. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, 
and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. Verse 30, that we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the people of the land brought wares of any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Verse 32, also, uh, we made ordinances uh, for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the, regu- for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Verse 35, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the firstfruits of our dough and offering the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and the oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the houses of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouses. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and of the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, and where the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers are. And we will not, listen, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is their covenant. You might be wondering, how does this apply to us? That's exactly what we're going to look at today. We're going to see that there's four specific areas they've identified. This is where we've gone off, and this is God where we're making a vow, making a covenant with you. We're going to, we're going to get better at. <laughs> now we're just going to get better at. We're going to actively pursue this as you as our witness to live out this way. So we want to talk about what makes us unique. What makes us unique as followers of God? Can we pray? And then we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we just are so, so thankful for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God, thank you for the story within Nehemiah that for us, it might almost seem foreign or like a different language to us. But God, it is so relevant today. God, we ask that you just speak it to our hearts, that we would be a covenant people just set apart for you, making our vows to you, God. God, we thank you for the new covenant that you offer us in your son, Jesus. And help us just see how even what we see here today relates to that new covenant. So we praise you. We look to you now in your name. Amen. Amen. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I got back from from California. We were out seeing just some family. Our niece got married, which is just crazy. Um, But we were out there, and as we were looking at California, because we moved away about 11 years ago, um, but as we were back home, there are some unique characteristics and qualities that make California just incredibly unique. Even here in South Florida, we have our own things that make us unique. For example, for California, I mean, I miss the mountains. 
Like, we just look at the mountains, you see mountains, like, almost wherever you go. Here we have Trash Mountain, which is great. It's funny, my, my son saw this, like, big mountain, because we, where the wedding was, is kind of, like, in the hills. And he goes, Dad, look, it's Trash Mountain! And I'm like, no, son, that's a real mountain. <laughs> like, I know it's strange. Uh, but California has its unique characteristics and qualities, as you might know, that many people talk about is what's dear to my heart is In-N-Out Burger for many of us. Uh, it's honestly, it's fun, just little, very just hip coffee shops. Uh, it's, it's the idea, it's like the surfing capital of the world. My parents live in Huntington Beach, and you're like driving in. It's a surf city, USA. You're like, yes. And Florida, we have the Florida man. We are the Florida man state. <laughs> so they have Cal- we have just different things that make us unique. Now, honestly, there's a lot of similarities. So similarities, obviously, both have extreme wealth and extreme poverty. Both are kind of beachy communities. I mean, there are a lot of similarities as well. But I want you to think about this, not just for a place, but for our lives. As a Graves, there are certain things that I have, that my dad has, that my brother has, that my son has. There's just unique qualities and characteristics. Same with you whatever your last name might be, but you have unique qualities and characteristics. And here's, here's the idea. As followers of Jesus, there are supposed to be unique characteristics and qualities that stand out. We are a unique people. Uh, maybe a little too unique, <laughs> some of us, but we are unique people. We are called out people. The idea is this. As followers of Jesus, we're going to value different things. We're going to value relationship to, I think, a different level. We're going to value community. We're going to value prayer, forgiveness, repentance. There are certain things just as followers of Jesus that we might value that the world might not value. It should set us apart. We should stand out. We should look different. And here in Nehemiah 10, we see some things. They say, here's how we're going to look different. Here's what's going to set us apart from just the normal person. And we have to see this ourselves. Now, before I even get into what makes us unique and what they call out, I do want to point out this, that they're making a covenant, chapter 9, verse 38, They're making a covenant. Actually, in verse 28, we'll put the verse up here so you can see it. Verse 29, uh, it literally says, um, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath. So they're entering into a covenant. They're saying, we're making a vow before you, God. We're making a covenant before you. I'm not sure if you and I fully get this, but as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we are a covenant people, worshiping, serving a covenant God, a God who makes covenants with his creation. God, who made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses, and he makes a covenant with us. And we have a lot to learn. We can learn from this covenant. We might call it the old covenant, and we'll talk about how Jesus introduces the new covenant. But there's so many parallels. There's so many crossovers. There's so many things we can learn from this covenant that they're making before God. You see, there's vows being exchanged essentially here to God. Here's what we're going to do, God. You know, as I said, we were at our niece's wedding on Friday, and just um, just watching the ceremony, it's just hard to, like, watch our, I mean, it's my wife's niece, but I've noticed since she was, like, in second grade, and she's a woman getting married. I'm like, this is so weird. And the, the pastor's going through the ceremony, and at the end, he, he forgets the vows. And he's, like, about to, like, I now put it, and they're like, stop. Like, they didn't do the vows. I'm like, the most important part. He's like, oh, yeah, we should probably do the vows now, and then they do the vows. And the vows being exchanged are not just supposed to be this mindless things we just repeat to each other. You see, vows are not just, I'm promising you my present love. That's really easy. Vows are promising you my future love. Vows are saying, even in the most difficult days, I choose to choose you on that day. See, vows are promising future love. And here's what it's difficult for us. We are a covenant people, but this is still so foreign. We're also Americans. Uh, we're also those who probably are less about covenants and more about consumerism. It's more about what do I get out of it? How do I benefit? If I make a covenant with God, how does it benefit me? 
And I think we misunderstand the idea of, of covenants. I also think we just as people, like we have FOMO. We have a fear of missing out. Um, we're those like, well, if I make a covenant to God, what about these other things I might miss out on in life? You know, making a covenant to God or maybe it's like within a community of people, like we're afraid of, of saying, I'm signing the dotted line, like I'm all in. But yet, as a follower of Jesus, that's essentially what this is. You're saying, Jesus, though none go with me, still I will follow. That's a covenant. Then you're saying, God, I'm going to follow you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. You see, there's something about covenant. See, a covenant it just means this. I'll put up a simple definition. Uh, a binding relationship based on vows that make people as close as family. That you might not be DNA, but it's as close as DNA. That you're making a covenant. It's not a contract. A contract is between two people. A covenant involves a third party. It involves God. God is saying, God, hold me accountable. People, hold me accountable. God, hold me accountable to these words I'm making this day. See, we all have desires for things. We might have a desire to work out more, to pray more. And there's a difference between a desire and a covenant. A covenant is, God, I'm, I'm choosing to follow you as you, as my witness, to hold me accountable to this within community, to follow you when I want to give up. God, that I'm going to follow you in the worst of my days. It's, not, it's more than a desire. And it's more than a contract. So here's why I'm bringing this up. Throughout history, God is related to man through covenants. And we see here this covenant renewal happening. And they're calling out in their lives, which I think so relates to us, four areas. They go, here's what we're committing to you to. And as we walk through this text, you can see this yourself. We'll put it up here. Here are the four things they're promising to do. Ready? You'll see the verses. You'll see it with it. This is, in summary, what they're saying. Number one is this. We will obey God's word. God, we will obey your word. Number two is, we will honor you sexually and relationally. We're going to honor you in these relationships, in marriage. Uh, they say, we will worship you, God, referring to the Sabbath. And then they will give to you, God. So, we will obey God's word. We'll honor God sexually. We will worship God. We will give to God. I want you to look at these four things as just very relevant today. I mean, as just followers of Jesus today, are these not things that we could renew our vows in, in a sense, to God? God will worship you and you alone. We'll follow your word. I'm going to honor you, God, sexually, relationally. God, we're going to give to you. We're, we're going to live for you. Everything we have is yours. So this is what they're walking through. So let's just, can we walk through this? Can we do that right now? Okay, let's do this. First one, uh, we will obey God's word. Look at verse 29 again. Halfway through, they say they take a, an oath of a curse and a promise, and then halfway through it says, here's their oath, to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, I love that, of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes, we will obey God's word. This is the first vow they're making. It's the first covenant renewal they're making. They're saying, God, we're going to follow you. We're going to follow your word. Uh, we talked about how in chapter eight, there was just this revival around the word. They rediscovered the word of God. They're teaching the word of God. The people are hungry for the word of God. They're crying when they hear the word of God going, God, our lives are so far from what we're hearing right now. And they're submitting to the word of God. Here's what they're doing. They're recognizing the authority of the Bible. Now let's talk about the Bible. Can we talk about the Bible? What you and I hold in our hands is absolutely incredible. I don't know if I fully appreciate this, I don't know if we all do. I mean, this is the number one printed book every year, always, for I don't know how many years now. But this is absolutely incredible. This is a book written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents, but all has one message. It's all pointing to the person of Jesus. It's all saying he's the hero of the story. There's one villain, the devil, and Jesus is the savior of the world. I mean, whatever book you're getting to, 
It's literally trying to point us to the Redeemer in Jesus. You see, this is a book that is not just unique, but it is incredibly unique. I mean, this is a book that people have, just for owning, they've lost their family, they've lost their lives, they, they've lost everything. This has been torn apart. People who've owned this book or proclaimed this book have been fed to the lions, lit on fire, just brutally abused. This book has been outlawed in so many different countries. This book has rescued those who've just been in bondage to addiction. This book has just rescued people who've just been terrible husbands, mothers, sons, friends. Their lifestyle's been completely redeemed and changed. I mean, this is a book that has shaped societies and cultures for thousands of years. This book, what you and I hold in our hands, I don't know if I know the value of it. I still don't know. Because we've grown up with it's just so common to us. This is what we just grew up with. We have one in every room. We have one everywhere. And this is a book just for very owning in different countries. They, they might kill you or just throw you in prison or just outlaw you in some way. What you and I have is incredible. And I want us to understand this. This, this is the literal word of God. Even when you look at the uniqueness, and I want you to remember a couple key things about the Bible. The gospel is too detailed to be legend. Can you write that down? Can you remember that? The gospel is too detailed to be legend. Those who study ancient manuscripts, a guy named C.S. Lewis used to study ancient manuscripts. He used to be an atheist. C.S. Lewis, who wrote some of the, most, the best Christian books today, he used to be an atheist but because he, he used to study actually ancient literature. And what led him to believe in Jesus was literally this idea of the Bible is a book that seems to be written as if it's written today. So meaning, for example, ancient books back in that day, they didn't have unique details. They didn't throw in details that didn't add to the story. So for example, it says in John 20 when Jesus was on the shore that the disciples caught 153 fish. Why does it say 153 fish? Because that's what they caught. Because that's what the eyewitnesses remember. No one wrote like that back then. No one described things like that back then. They wrote like that because they're an eyewitness. They wrote like that. They wrote away ahead of its time. It's so far too detailed to be a legend. Also, remember this thought. It's just too counterproductive to be a legend. It's too counterproductive. The guys who wrote this book appear and they, they kind of write themselves as like the three stooges. They're constantly fighting. They're constantly arguing. I'm going to be the greatest. They're constantly sinning. They're, they're, they're really rebuking each other, even in the New Testament in Acts and First Peter. They're constantly calling each other out. My point is, if you're going to make this up, you're not going to try to make yourself appear this way. You're not going to try to make yourself appear to be just foolish and silly. The point is, this book is just far too counterproductive to be legend. There's just so many unique qualities about this book. And we have it. And here's what's, what's going on. They're hearing the word of God, and they're saying, we will obey. We will submit. God, not what I want, not what I think is best. Because all of us in this room have an idea of what we might think is best, but we're going to to collectively submit to you in your word. Here's what Jesus said. Write this down. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus simply said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, to me, this is like Christianity 101, right? Like, do you love Jesus? I love Jesus. Do you keep his commandments? No way. Okay, you don't love Jesus. <laughs> Jesus goes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just that simple. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then John adds to that in a very gr in a great way. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, what? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So Jesus goes, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And John says, that's the love of God, keeping his commandments, and it's not a burden to you. Like you just enjoy to do it. You know when you love someone, it's not a burden. When you love someone, you enjoy it. Uh, we have our little five-month-old baby, Kinsley, who's just this little chubby little girl. She takes after her dad. Uh, she's just so cute. She just came out just so thick and chunky. And, you know, sometimes just carrying her around, like, at the airport and all day, you're like, my back hurts, and this is a little tired. My arms are on fire. But it's, it's a joy. It's a joy. 
I don't carry her. And she's like, oh, she's such a burden, right? It's not like this baby's a burden. No, she's a, it's a joy. It's my daughter. When she smiles at me, you're like, you just get extra strength. There's just something about, you go, I love you. Even though it might be heavy, even though it might be difficult, it's not a burden. Here's the idea with God's word. Even though it might be heavy, it might be difficult, it's not a burden. It's one of those things you go, God, I love you. I want to keep your commandments. You know, I don't, I, we're walking through this right now with my son because we're trying to teach my son obedience, which will probably be just a lifelong lesson that I'm still learning, but we're trying to teach him obedience. So everything we're saying, we said to him like multiple times this trip, son, if you obey, life would be great. Like if you obey, we'd let you stay up longer. If you obeyed, you'd have like more desserts. Like just obey. Like if you just obeyed, you'd have fullness of joy. And honestly, I just picture that God in heaven doing that with me. So like, Josiah, if you just obeyed, you'd have fullness of joy. Like God's law, can I just remind us? God's law is to bring fullness of joy. Don't you know that God's word is not there to just burden us? You know God's word is not there to steal your joy? I know that growing up in the church, it's easy to think like God's word is there to steal our joy. But God's word is there so we might have fullness of life. Do not commit adultery. But God, it's like, no, I want you to have fullness of joy in your marriage and relationships. Like, why are the commands there? Is it because God's trying to steal something? No, he's trying to give us fullness of joy. See, here's the idea. They said, God, we, we're hearing your word. We've heard your word the last few weeks, the people in Nehemiah's day. And they're saying, we will observe it. We will do it. We will walk in it. This is the covenant we're making with you. And church, can we make that same covenant? Say, God, we will obey your word. We know your commands are not burdensome. We know they're there for our enjoyment. We know they're there for us to enjoy you. If you ever feel like, why are my prayers not going anywhere? Why am I not enjoying it? It's like, maybe, maybe it just comes from obedience. Just obeying him and his word. Amen. Let's be people who obey. They're saying, we will obey your word. Number two is this. They're saying, God, we will honor you sexually and relationally. And here's the verse, and here's why I say it this way. It's verse 31. Look at verse 31, uh, or verse, sorry, 30. They say, we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. What is this about? Let's talk about this. They're talking about intermarrying. Uh, here's the idea. Remember, they've just been exiled. They've been in slavery. They're poor. Um, there are some wealthy Jews taking advantage of the poor Jews, and they're getting more poor. And there's a temptation in this day to say, let us marry outsiders. Let us marry foreigners. Let us marry these pagans uh, for the sake of just kind of increasing our status. And this is how people back in that day would increase their status. They'd maybe intermarry in different ways. And they'd increase their wealth and increase their status. And here's why that's a no. Uh, we know from the very beginning, God's like, I've called you not to intermarry, not because this is a racial thing, but this is a religious thing. It's not a racial thing that you can't marry other people on different foreigners, but I want you to marry within your own because I want you to worship the same God. I want you to worship me. Because as soon as you intermarry, you're going to take on their gods, their beliefs, their lifestyle, their habits, and that's not acceptable. And this is essentially about saying, this is not, in, don't intermarry for the sake of race, but for the sake of religion, for the sake of what's really important. Here's the verse. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7, and they knew this. Remember, they would have read this that day and heard it. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, it says, nor shall you make marriages with them, with the outsiders, with the foreigners, with the people. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughters for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. There's the warning. Here's the idea. They're hearing this. Remember, this is being read all day. And so they're going, God, we're going to obey your word. First thing we're going to do, we're going to stop marrying people who don't worship you. We're going to stop this intermarrying thing that you command us to. You know, it's really interesting. There's a story in Numbers chapter 22. And I, I would love for you to go back and read this story. Maybe you've heard of Balaam and Balak. 
Here's the idea. In Numbers 22, the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness, they get to the land of Moab. The king of Moab, Balak, goes, the people are many. They're going to like eat up our resources. They might take us over. We got to stop them. So he hires a prophet, a prophet of God, and he was a prophet of God named Balaam. I know the names are close and it's kind of difficult, but Balaam was the prophet. And so he goes, Balaam, I need you to curse the people. If you remember, Balaam's like, I can't go with you. And then he prays, which is not, it's not a real prayer, but he goes, he's like, okay, I can go with you. He goes with him. So Balak the king says, Balaam, curse the people, curse them. So Balaam gets up on this mountain over the people, looking at the nation of Israel, and a blessing came out of his mouth. And Balak is like, I told you to curse them. He goes, I said what I said. I don't know. It just came out. He's like, okay, curse them now. And he curses, and he tries to get up and curse them, but a blessing comes out, and this happens four times. He, just, he keeps blessing the people. And Balak the king is going, I'm paying you to curse them. Why can't you curse them? He goes, they are uncursable people. I can't curse them. I can't, I, God will not let me even get the words out of my mouth to curse them. But here's what you can do. Balaam says, this is what you can do. Here's your strategy, king. Send out your women, send out the wives, send out the people, bring them to the tents, bring them to the men, and have them worship their gods. Bring their heart. You can't do it from without, so attack from within. And so they sent their women, and the people's hearts were turned after these women and after their gods. And if you remember, that's what led to their destruction. Here's the point for us today. For us today, there's the same idea that we still see in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. For you and I, for you and I it's not about, again, it's not a racial thing, it's about intermarrying, it's a religious thing. It's about saying worship and serve and be married to and being a covenant with the person of the opposite sex who serves and worships the same God. That you and I should not be in a relationship with someone, pursuit of marriage or marriage, that is, that is a non-believer and follower of Jesus. Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says. Let's just read it. It'll be up here. And this is such a Christian term we use sometimes, but you'll understand. Verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Say amen. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I love when the new covenant pulls from the old covenant to say this applies to us. To say, listen, and do not hear the promises. He goes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be in this kind of relationship with someone who's not a lover of Jesus, believer of Jesus, follower of Jesus. He goes, do you not know that I would walk among you? Do not know that you'd be my people, my sons and my daughters. He's literally giving, and do not see that this is, a, this is a promise in the New Testament for us. God is saying, when you do relationships holy and right, I'll walk among you. I'll be among you. You'll be my sons and my daughters. Why are you wasting your time pursuing a relationship with someone who doesn't love me the way you love me? Why would you ever join a covenant with someone who does not have the same views of God, the most important person, the most important thing in your life, and you're going to walk into a covenant with them? He goes, do not do that. Do not be unequally yoked. So we'll use that phrase. And we're like, what the heck do you mean, Christians? Uh, do not be, don't, don't put a strong ox maybe with a weak donkey. Put an ox with an ox. <laughs> put them together. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not bind them together. He's saying, do you not see that God will walk among you? So here, here's, for me, this is honestly a prayer for us this week as I read this. It's like, God, please protect our church in this way. Let us have believers who are so committed to you, Jesus, they won't even entertain that thought. 
They want to entertain that thought with that guy or that girl because their, their desire above all is, I want to be with someone who loves you with everything they got. I'm not going to enter into a covenant with someone who kind of is okay with it. See, it's not a matter of, but they, but they put up with it. Like, they're okay with it. If that's, not, that's not the point. Is, it, is this blessable? Is this God honoring? Is this going to be a, a couple, a power couple for God and his kingdom? Like, what is this? It has to be so much more. I've talked to so many guys and girls both who said, but he, but she believes in God. And the answer is, great, even demons believe in God. That's not enough. It's not enough about believing in God. Is Jesus their Lord, their Savior? Is they, are they following him with everything they got? See, I know this, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I know this might seem strange. But you understand, Jesus for us is the most important person in the universe. And the idea is we want to love him and serve him, and we want to do that with someone else who wants to love him and serve him. And as both of you pursue Jesus together, you watch that relationship just grow and grow and grow and climb and climb and say, yes, I'm doing life with someone who same, feels the same way that I do. See, here's the covenant they're making. They're saying, God, we're going to honor you sexually and relationally. We're not going to entertain this idea. We want our families to serve you and worship you. This is like a family covenant. I, honestly, as I read this, I thought about like baby dedications. I thought about different things like parents, people getting together and just saying, I want my family to love you and worship you. God, we're not going to We're not going to entertain this idea. We're not going to missionary date for the hope that they get saved. And maybe there's still, there's still this idea that they still lack so much. We want, not even just like equally yoked to me means like, do you have similar views of just the Bible, of Jesus, of raising a family? Not like the person, they're saved, like they're a Christian, but like, no, but do you, guys com- do you guys compete with each other? Are you guys both pursuing and running after Jesus together? Is there like this growth maturity in both of you, or is one really mature and one really immature? Like there needs to be this equally yoked idea. And they're saying, we're, we're going to do this. What a great covenant to make with God. Would you agree? Hey God, we're going to obey your word, and first thing first, we're going to do relationships right. We're going to honor you in relationships. Number three is this. They say, we will worship you, God. We're going to worship you. We're going to restore worship. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this uh, for number three. It says, verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Here's the idea. They're saying, we're going to worship you, God, and honor you, God. We're going to do the Sabbath right. So here's the idea of Sabbath for them. Um, Sabbath was something they have not committed to. Sabbath was something they've actually abused for so many years. God says, you're going to go into Babylon as slaves because you've not let the the land rest. You've not honored the Sabbath. This is actually really interesting. You know, one of the greatest, you could say, errors for the people is they did not rest. They found their identity in their work. They got their meaning from what they did, and they didn't find their identity in whose they are. They go, let us find meaning and value and economically prosper. Let us find meaning and identity in our work. And they were neglecting their worship. You see, this is much to do about worship and little to do with work. The idea of the Sabbath is not just don't do anything for a day. The idea of the Sabbath was that you might worship God and take a, take a break from work. And this is so good for Americans. This is so good for us. That we just take a break. We worship. We honor God with worship. We say, God, we're going to make worship a priority. We're going to make personal and public worship a priority. We're going to show our kids. We're going to show our kids, teach our kids that you matter. That time with you matters. That intimacy with you matters above all. That though I could provide houses and vacate, none of that matters if I don't have personal worship. We're going to worship you, God. Now, kind of here's, here's the question. Or actually, let me read this verse to you. Like I said, they, they got thrown into slavery because of this. Look at Second Chronicles 36. We'll throw the verse up here. 
just kind of halfway through thought, he says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath all the days that it lay desolate, it kept its Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. There's actually 70 years of slavery for them in Babylon to give 70 years that they were working, the year they're supposed to take off. So they would work six years and let the, they're supposed to let the land rest for a year. They're supposed to work six years and not do any farming for a year. That's amazing. Think about the faith. Think about the faith of that, God. We're going to trust you for a year. For a year, you're going to have to provide. We're going to let the land rest. In the year of Jubilee, that was the 50th year. After seven, seven-year periods, they let the 50th year rest. So they'd have two years of no farming, no working. And God's like, you, you never let the land rest. You're going to pay me back the Sabbath. That's why they went into exile. God's like, pay it back. Again, for us, this matters when it comes to work and worship. Now, you might wonder, but why don't we like practice the Sabbath the way they do in that day? Why do we have Sunday as our day of worship? The book of Acts tells us because that's the day Jesus rose again, and we just want to remember the fact that Jesus rose again on the first of the week. Amen? That's why for us, it like transferred to let us have our day of rest. Let us have this day of worship in a sense, because that's the day Jesus rose again. That's for us. We want to celebrate that truth and that fact. Here's another verse, by the way. Your kids like, I, I really struggle with the Sabbath idea. Like, why don't we, why don't we like rest on the Sabbath, fully rest? Here's the idea. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to this. Therefore, please listen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's the idea. Sabbath was so much more than about just observing a day, but it's about observing a person. That the Sabbath was a picture or shadow of Jesus who is our Sabbath rest. Jesus literally says, come to me all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. That's what he says. I'll give you rest. Jesus says, I will be your Sabbath. Colossians 2 says the substance is of Christ. This day of worship is supposed to speak of of Christ. Now, with that in mind, yes, I still think it's valuable for us to slow down and to see that work is not our priority. Making money is not our God. God is our God. Jesus is our God. So yes, it's important for us as well to observe this, but we can also know, like, no, we can turn our car and light a fire and turn on a light switch because why? Because Jesus is our rest, all right? Jesus is our Sabbath. It's pointing to him. We're not observing a day. We're observing a person. Amen? That is the idea. That's what it's pointing to. But here, here for us, what a good covenant to make with God. God, I'm going I'm to worship you. I'm going to stop. I'm going to set aside time. I'm not going to do business. I'm going to make sure that I have a time to just enjoy you and worship you. They're committing to worshiping God. And lastly, if you look down, verse 32 to 39, they're literally just saying, we will give to you, God. Number four is this, we will give to God. I'm not going to reread verse 32 through 39, but I want to point out some key things. Really quick, here, uh, just look down at this. Here's what they brought, okay? So we will give to God. What did they bring? We'll put this up here. Supplies for the temple and the sacrifices. They're like, we're going to give the supplies. Uh, they gave one-third of a shekel. This was later known in Jesus' day as a temple tax, whenever they'd go to the temple. Uh, we're going to give the first fruits and firstborn. So the idea of first fruits is literally, as soon as we see fruit on the tree, the best fruit, the first fruit, the first party that's going to God, and they brought their tithe, or 10% of their income to God. This is them. Think about this really quick if you like add this. This is, a, this is very generous. This is a generous group of people saying, God, we've also neglected you. We've neglected your house no longer. You can read Haggai. You can read Malachi. In these different books, God is like, you're taking care of your houses, but you neglect mine. You're bringing to me your lambs that are blind. Would you bring that to your governor, but yet you bring it to me? God is like, you bring your best to others, but you won't bring it to me. 
And so they're realizing, God, we've not been generous. God, we've actually been withholding from you. We're going to supply the needs. We're going to give a tenth of our property. We're going to, and they gave to God extraordinarily. Now for us in the New Testament, how does this work? Here's what we see in the New Testament. We see what repeated for us is the idea of giving cheerfully, giving sacrificially, and giving regularly. In the New Testament, it's the idea of, let it, you should feel it. If under the Old Testament they gave this, should we under grace give less? Of course not. The idea is not like, but we're in the New Testament's grace, man. Like, the idea is, man, we have, we have a, the book of Hebrews says we have a better covenant. So under this better covenant, let's be less generous. That's not the idea. The idea is that we have a better covenant. We've experienced more grace. So let's be more generous. There's something beautiful about what they're doing here. They're saying, God, we've been withholding. Everything is yours. You see, I think we do do this. I can be guilty. We go, God, how much of my, of my money can I keep? When, God, how much of your money are you letting me keep? God, this is yours. All of it's yours. Thank you, God. There's just a different perspective and approach and heart. So not just what they bought, but here's what it's for. We'll throw the verses up here. What is it for? It's for the service of the house of our God, verse 32, and all the work of the house of our God, and to the priests who minister in the house of our God. The idea is we want ministry to continue on. We need to staff this. We need to, bring, we need to make sure that we can do this. We need to help meet the supplies and needs. There's an idea just for the house of God. And here's the thing. I, I want you to see this. This is not about you and, and necessarily us. I hope that you can just be generous to God. I hope that you have a local church. I hope that if this is your local church, you're generous to it, and it's not given to your church, but you're giving with the mindset, this is God, this is his. When we see for us, our, we write our check, or we see it go through, we'll get an email, we'll pray over that, and be like, God, multiply this. This is yours. This is to you. This is our form of not neglecting the house, of taking care of the temple, taking care of the service of ministry. This is our form of that. I would encourage you to pray over that. To say, God, multiply this, do what you want with this. Reach people, save people in your name, Jesus. The whole point is this, you guys. Let us just be generous. They're saying, God, we've, you've been so good to us. And I want you to understand something. Please hear this. They recognize they're in the middle of a revival. They go, God, you brought us back into our land. You rebuilt the walls and the gates. You're actually rebuilding homes now. The temple's rebuilt. People are worshiping you, God. God, let us not forget this moment and be, let it become about us. Let us, as we've received your goodness, God, let us just show your goodness. God said to Abraham, I have blessed you, why? So you can be a blessing. God, you've been so good to us. Let us just let it flow through our hands. I'm not owners. This is not mine. I'm a steward. This is yours. I want to give it back. And there's this approach and heart and mindset. And here's what I love about this. Please listen. This is what makes us unique. You want to know what makes us unique? Followers of Jesus, that we're generous. Generous to to a new extreme. Hospitals are built in the name of Jesus, orphanages. I mean, just care, compassion all around the world for children. It's just in the name, just generosity through believers in Jesus has absolutely changed the world. It has. This makes us so unique. I want you to think about this. In the early church days, you know what they said about Christians? There was literally a saying, they're saying they are stingy with their body and generous with their money. While for them, the pagans were generous with their body and stingy with their money. And they're going, Christians are completely different. They're not, they're not stingy with their money. They're stingy with their body. <laughs> they're not just sleeping with whoever they want, whenever they want. See, what makes us unique is, you could say, the way we do sex and sexuality, the way we do generosity. Tim Keller said it this way. I thought it was so good. We'll read it. He said this, the early church was strikingly, listen, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. 
And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. What makes us unique? The way we do sex, relationships, the way we do generosity. I mean, this really is identifying markers for a follower of Jesus. It just is. God has been so generous to us. How can we not be generous? There's something that's just going to transform our heart in this way. You see, for us today, I want us just to look at this covenant in a sense. We got to say, Nehemiah's day, they go, God, we're going to do your word. God, we're going to do sexuality different. God, we're going to honor you, uh, not just in sex, but we're going to worship you and make sure you have a time, set apart time for worship. And God, we're, gonna give, we're, not gonna, we're not going to neglect your house any longer. That last phrase in verse 39 if you want to just read that one more time, they simply said, we will not neglect the house of our God. God, we've neglected your house for too long. We've neglected the ministry for too long. No more. How could we ever forget all that you've done for us? And then here's what happened over time. Remember Jesus' day? The Pharisees tithed everything. They tithed their mint. They tithed their herbs. Like they tithed everything they had. And Jesus goes, and you're not generous. You can still give and not be generous. See, for us, it's how do we give sacrificially? How do we give cheerfully? How do we say, thank you, God, that you've given so much to me that I can now give back to you? How do we give regularly? These are the things that the New Testament talks about. Here's how we give today. It's not just, let me just do this because of the law. Let me do this because of love. And it changed everything about them. So here's what this covenant reminds me of. It reminds us of the covenant we made with Jesus. Jesus, I'll follow you. I will obey you. I'll give everything for you. I'll worship you. I'm going to honor you with my sexuality, my life, my lifestyle and relationships. I'm going to honor you with my money. These vows they made still do apply to us in so many ways. There's so many great parallels. But here's what it does for us as well. And I want to close with this thought. It reminds us of the new covenant we're in. This covenant that they were in reminds us of our new covenant. Why do I say new covenant? Because Jesus said new covenant. Jesus uses words. Look at Luke 22, uh, verse 20. We'll throw the verse up here. Here's what Jesus said. Likewise, it says, Jesus also took the cup after supper saying, listen, Jesus said this, this is the cup in my name, or in my, I cut it off in my Bible, I'm sorry, in my blood, which is shed for you. He goes, this cup that I'm holding right here is the new covenant. My blood, which is shed for you. Let me point it out this way. The new covenant is not so much about what we do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. The new covenant is Jesus saying, I paid it all. You don't have to give. You don't have to do these things. You don't have to worship. You don't have to, you don't have to. We get to worship him. We get to honor him with our body. We get to honor him with our lifestyle, with our worship, with our generosity. We get, we get to. Jesus goes, you are right with me. You're saved by my blood. None of the things you ever do could save you. But in light of this new covenant, we want to and we get to. In light of the new covenant that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood that was shed, this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat, take and drink. Do this because you have a new covenant. You're saved by my grace. You're saved by my sacrifice. You're saved by what I've done for you. Understand this again. Any, anyone and everyone in this room, you are going to heaven. You're going to walk with God and know God forevermore because of what Jesus has done for you. Nothing that you've done. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. As many as receive Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. As many as receive, do you receive Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus did it. My hope is in him. My faith is in him. I'm looking to him. I receive the new covenant. I enjoy the new covenant. And out of that, I get to follow him. I get to give it all. I get to worship him. Amen? This is the new covenant we're in. So here's what we're going to do. We can't talk about covenants and not end with communion. We did this two weeks ago. I know, it's okay to do it more than once a month, okay? We're going to take communion again. And we're going to remember the new covenant that we have. We're going to remember the new covenant that Jesus gave to us. So let's just do this. 
Um, I'm just going to ask this and, and just make it really clear. If you believe in Jesus, take this cup, remember his blood. Take the cracker, remember his body that was broken for you. Celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Say, God, thank you. If you do not believe in Jesus, do not take the cup, do not take the cracker, no need to. There's never a need to remember something you don't believe in. But if you want to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus and that cup and that cracker comes before you, take it and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I love you. You offered your blood for me. You gave your body for me. Take it. Eat freely. I love that. There's an invitation throughout Isaiah. Come, you that have no money, buy, eat, and drink. Come, this is, this is free. This, the gift of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men is free. It's free because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? I'm going to pray. We're going to end our time with just some communion and some worship. And as you get communion, just take it when you're ready and then just join us in worship. We'll continue with worship and I'll come back here and close with announcements. But please just take and eat when you're ready. Just spend some time talking and praying to God. So let's pray. Father, we're just um, incredibly grateful for the new covenant. (laughs) We're incredibly grateful for the truth that Jesus, this was your blood that was shed for our sins. And God, that we can have relationship with you because you came down, because you pursued us. And so God, as we just take that cup, as we, as we look at that cracker with the holes in it, <laughs> we're reminded of your body that was pierced. We're reminded of your body that was broken. We're reminded of the fact that your blood was shed for us so we might have relationship with you. And God, let us be a covenant people to say for better or for worse. To say, though none go with me, I'll follow you, Jesus. Jesus, to be those who will honor you with our bodies, honor you with our worship, with our generosity, and that we'll just submit to your word in all that we do. We thank you, God. We just ask that you just be so present and so near in this time, that you just speak over us, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Feel free to pass out communion, and when you're ready, feel free to uh, take and eat.